Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Hello, I'm Scott Postman. I'm joined again by Joffrey Swate, our co-host, and we today are talking about Chapter 5 and Norms and Nobility, continuing on the conversation. Saving the appearances, a uh, potentially uh, confounding word. It sounds a little bit like we have to save face. Right. right. Yeah. But I don't think he means that at all. No, we'll get into that. <laughs> well, I, I think one of the great things about um, being able to take this work and unpack it a little bit is we get to read the end of the chapter first, and that's where we're going to go today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we get to read the end of the book. And so I want to start at the end and just sort of look at the conclusion and give our audience a little bit of understanding of where we're going and, and what, um, what Hicks is doing in this chapter. And I think it's really paramount in our modern world where science and reason uh, seems to be in some ways um, pitted against religion and philosophy. And and so there's this sort of fabricated divide between the two. Mm. And one of the things he gets at is why it turns out to be that way, because we treat science wrongly. Right. And, you know, and just as a, as a reminder before you, you, know, you read a bit from the end of chapter five, you know, this has directly to do with chapter four and, and, and the tyrannizing image. And in that chapter, uh, you know, he Talked, Hicks talked about uh, Descartes and uh, the the Descartian Cartesian <laughs> way of really eventually like deconstructing everything into little little pieces. Yeah, Descartes totally shifted the direction of what science and philosophy meant or what it actually did. Right? right. So, all right. So let's start with this quote. It's a great quote. He says there is still a need, although no longer physical to save appearances, to make man's knowledge of the appearances answer to his normative concerns. Even in science, what is draws meaning and value from what ought to be. Even in science, what is draws meaning and value from what ought to be. And I think that's a, a sort of a shocking statement, yeah, right? It is. Uh, how is science moral? And won't you pervert science if it's driven by some sort of ideal or what you think ought to be. And before we unpack that, you know, I'd like to mention that, you know, when he talks about appearance, he's using it in, in sort of a platonic yeah. way. Um, the Greek word he has in mind is the word that we get phenomena from. Yeah, sozenta phenomena, which is the idea of save appearances to 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 salvage, and and he unpacks what that means when he says they aimed at saving appearances. They searched for a model, right? right. So a theory, an equation, a geometric or or mechanical paradigm to account for the irregularities that they observed in nature. So man at this time is, you know, not quite to the place of looking through a telescope, but he's looking at the world around him and he's trying to make sense of some things that seem to be stable, some things that seem to be in flux. And what, uh, what Hicks really does so well in this chapter, I think is point to the fact that in the ancient world, the whole point of science wasn't to make progress. It wasn't right. to develop technology. Matter of fact, as he points out, that was a dead end, right? They, and they understood that that was a dead end and not a dead end technologically and making people more affluent and, and life easier, but it was a dead end morally because their aim was to live the good life versus 
the prosperous life, right. right? As as we would define it as Americans today. So so you know the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness was really life, liberty, and the pursuit of living a good life. What is the most virtuous kind of yeah. way of living? And this is legitimately a difficult conversation because we we all enjoy uh, the the fact that we have penicillin. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I would never argue that uh, the only way to arrive at a timeline that has penicillin <laughs> uh, is is having the, the concept of, of modern science that we have. Um, but, you know, the the acceleration after men like Francis Bacon and, and Descartes uh, in what is referred to today as scientific progress, you know, yeah. and, and you know, and all this technology, that acceleration uh, can't be denied. So this yeah. is legitimately a difficult conversation, but it's a healthy, difficult conversation because it forces you to consider the value of the good life. Would I rather live a good life with no penicillin? Yeah. Or a meaningless life with penicillin. Now that's a tough question, right? Because, you know, if, if we stop for a moment and we're to ask that question honestly of ourselves, um, you know, we say, can we make penicillin, you know, and um, yes, we can make penicillin. Should we make penicillin? Right. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think we can apply, you know, just, just kind of to, to give a little bit of a, um, a forward look at, you know, why this conversation is important. We make things all the time in our, our technological world science has brought us just not just penicillin but all kinds of things that we say man we can make rockets we can go to the moon we're going to try you know some people are trying to make a colony on mars but no one's asking the question should we do those things right and it's because of how how we think about knowledge right so uh, right at the beginning of the chapter uh, hicks talks about you know the words that uh, the greeks used to talk about science uh, and they're philosophical words, words like philosophy, theory, and episteme, yep. right? Where we yep. get epistemology from knowledge. And knowledge is really at, at the root of all this and how we, how we think of knowledge. And uh, the, the Descartian... Um, I, I, by the way, I uh, was re-listening to last, uh, last week's podcast. And I was like, why didn't I say Cartesian? And then I remembered... I hate that word. <laughs> and the only reason for it is every time I come across it in text, I have to remind myself what it means. Oh, that you were talking about. That Descartes. we're talking about. Yeah, Descartes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Descartes. So I'm going to say Descartes, y'all. Descartes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the, uh, the, the modern understanding uh, of knowledge is that we approach the object and the object is immovable, right? The object yeah. is what it is, right? right? So there's a, there's a, there's a, piece of information there's a datum and we come to it and when we can we can know it we can understand it and it makes of knowledge a very non-relational thing or the uh, i think a more correct view and certainly the the ancient view um is that it's more about man because it's more about god yes right so and so this is christian humanism right that's exactly right and you know i think even the 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 use of of the word science you know the English is uh, a little impoverished when it comes to words for knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and, and so, science—the word science—comes from Latin, yeah, right. And it does mean knowledge, 
but it means knowledge in the sense of understanding. Sure. Right. Um, so, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching Spanish, you know, there are two verbs for to know in Spanish. And I tell, tell the kids, well, one of them is for knowing pieces of information and the other is for knowing things more relationally. And so, of course, this is the one you use for people, but not just for people, right? You, you can relationally, organically, holistically, uh, know a city, know a place, know a field of knowledge, right? And so then when we talk about the word, the word science and skiens, the Latin, it's knowing, it's understanding. It's awareness and consciousness. Sure. And even to like unpack this in a way that, uh, that maybe uh, can be familiar to English speaking Christians. Um, it was used also the, the, the word skiens was used to talk about sexual relationships. Sure. The, to know yeah. the way the Bible yeah, says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and then he, you know, he knew his wife sort of thing. Uh, amusingly, according to this, uh, the source I'm looking at, it was only used skiens was only used for a woman having sexual relationships with, with a man. Okay. So apparently, you know, a woman could know more relationally. I don't know, but it's important for us to, to, to read. Well, where do we, where do we get this word from? Why do we say science? Well, it's because when Christians started you know, doing science in a way that we might recognize, they still thought of it as philosophy, yes. as relational, as knowing fields, not as knowing data. And then there was a shift because men like Descartes and Bacon chose to question everything and to be skeptical of everything. There was nothing transcendent. Well, and that's, so when we go back to the to the Greeks, their idea of knowledge or what their pursuit of, of science, if we use that word, was the atea, the idea of first causes, right? So what what is causing what, you know? And so by being able to find out what the causes of anything are, this gives us some meaning to why things are the way they are in the world, whether it's in flux or whether it's stable. And, and so when we, as, as you mentioned, Joffrey, when we, we switched later on in the early modern period and we, you know, um, we went from an ontological, um, you know, premise in looking at why is something the way it is? What is that thing? The, you know, the ontology of it, mm -hmm. we went to, how do we know that we can know this? So this is with Descartes, we switched to more of an epistemology. Science becomes simply observation. And, 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 and since we're such imperfect observers, we have the complaint, the modern contemporary complaint that the science is changing. The science changed. The science changed. The science changed. I mean, that's been a mantra over the last three years. <laughs> well, and I think, and that's what he points out in this chapter is that the, one of the reasons why it's pitted against religion or, or faith or, you know, the things that we would think of more metaphysically, it's pitted against that because there is this assumption that by observing, by doing analysis, um, we are going to, um, you know, serve mankind in some progressive way, whereas theorizing um, has no real meaning, right, to to the modern man. Yeah. But the theorizing is where uh, where the the meaning comes from. So that's why today we don't we have there's no ought. It's just simply this is the way things are, and people are reduced to some analytical analysis. The theorizing is where meaning comes from. I mean. It, it really, it really comes down to, uh, you know, so the, the phenomena, the, the appearances, um, the only way to get for us to get permanent answers is by asking what it's for. Yes. Right. And if we don't, if we don't ask what it's for or what it means, if we don't ask those questions, uh, then we'll in fact get nowhere. 
Well, and and so so this is one of the the modern you know the, one of the modern problems when we look at somebody and they say something like, well, it's in the science. Okay, well, wait a second. Um, if I was to look at a car driving down the road, there's a blinker, right? You know, I could say, what is that? That's a light flashing. But that's not just a, you know. If I went to pass them and they were turning left and they crashed into me, and the officer said, "Did they have their turn signal on?" Well, I don't know. There was a flashing light. I saw a flashing light. He said, "That means they're turning, right?" Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, so we associate, and maybe we don't think about it. We associate whatever data that there is. We associate that with some kind of meaning. Modern science wants to take away the meaning and say that's just data. Yeah. But all and 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 Hicks points this out here. I think this is worth reading. Um, that depending on the spirit in which it is understood or in which it's taken, all data is going to be interpreted in some particular way. And so if we leave it uninterpreted or unapplied to any kind of a theory, then we have to justify the whole reason why we're doing science. Or if we, if we pretend we're not, uh, we're not interpreting it, right? At the end of the last chapter, uh, Hicks talked about the fact that, you know, the education's graduation from a golden mean philosophy to one of statistical mean is not yet complete. Uh, and it's because uh, the ideal type persistently tugs at our hearts, but we dismiss it as a subjective longing for a bygone era. But, you know, they're, they're, we're, we're still human beings. So part of the perniciousness of this thinking, and, and, and I, know, I know you're going to get to the quote, I'm hoping that I'm building it up. Um, but, you know, part of the perniciousness is not just in the building a statistical world. Yeah, it's in the fact that uh, we still end up giving it meaning, and so we are we end up telling other people because of the, of the statistics what their lives mean. Yes, that's that's exactly right. Well, so from a modern point of view, he says science based on attempts to save appearances is deficient in at least two respects. So I, I want to just kind of back up from that. The first is that it provides no incentive for articulating and systematizing a method of discovery. That's analysis, because one needs to abstract models with non-empirical hypothesis to save appearances. The second, um, ancient science, uh, ancient science's highly theoretical character blinded it to the possibility of developing a technology. So while the modern world is looking at that and saying, well, the way they did it, uh, doesn't allow man to progress. They're saying that's the exactly right. We, that's not the goal here. And so when we come to, um, uh, let's see, let me find it here. When we come to the ancient man, the ancient regarded himself as a microcosm of a world he inhabited. He existed at several interlevels of being that paralleled the world's outer levels of being. So first at the lowest level, man's physical nature, his flesh, his five senses, they all corresponded to the material nature of the universe. The second, the rational nature of man at the next level corresponded to the law, purpose, or the logos inherent in the material universe. And then thirdly, at the highest level, man's spiritual mythopoeic, self-transcendent nature paralleled the divine creator, the lawgiver, the form of the good standing above the material universe. So the idea of saving appearances means how do these three things correspond to each other, right? How do I understand my self, my, you know, uh, ever abiding self in relation to these different tiers. And so he says, um, whereas the ancients may have differed among themselves, among the uses of the first two levels of being, that is his physical nature and maybe his rational nature, where do they fit? There's a lot of argument, you know, about those things and how to, to split them up. They all agreed on the third, right? And so he says that, um, all agree that self-knowledge was an essential prerequisite 
for a correct understanding of the inferior levels. All wanted their instruction to bring man to a knowledge of his abiding self, a knowledge making man both wise and virtuous and enabling him to win insights into the lower levels of being. And again, the, uh, this, this knowledge is a spiritual knowledge, a mythopoeic knowledge, um, you know, tra- a transcendent knowledge. And I think there's, you know, there's a, there's a, a profound irony in, in, in how uh, we moderns look at, look at the world. Um, you know, so we, reading from that same section a little higher up, uh, philosophy dictated, therefore, that one could save the appearance with hypothetical models, but one could not know the appearances in a manner commensurate with modern empirical proof and technological innovation. Only the non-empirical, unalterable, imminent reality could be the subject of knowledge. And we are actually living in a world that does the exact opposite yes. of that, right? So so the, the ancient claim uh, is that you know we, we can know truth but we can't always know phenomena appearances right because we can't always interpret what they mean um and it's the the exact opposite is what we're taught today the one thing we can know is that the grass is green and how the (laughs) how the celestial bodies move what we can't know is what a person is yes what is a man? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we're recording this uh, yeah. during uh, <laughs> during the great. Uh, what is a woman? I don't know. I'm not a biologist. <laughs> Uh, so, well, I mean, I, I mean, in all reality, I, I mean, no, no doubt, you know, just to kind of riff off your, your quote there from this, you know, Senate hearing, the idea, the idea that we're there so politically that we're afraid to make these kinds of, of comments, um, and, and the fact that there are some espousing the idea that nobody can define what that is, is the very reason why, what, what, what good does it do to develop technologically if we can't answer the question, what is a woman or what is a right. man, right? Or what, what is man's purpose in the world? Yeah. Yeah. So, so he says, this is the very thing. So the shift is what fixes the gulf between the arts and the sciences. He says a science of, of numbers feeding on technological or commercial ambitions generates a new attitude concerning the nature of man and his purpose, right? It flattens the vertical levels of being conception of man. We just talked about those three levels. And, and so the modern science flattens it. And, and turns the flow of his curiosity away from the normative, this ideal image, this ideal type, toward the analytical. We don't theorize about what could be or what this might mean. It's just what can we observe. And if the study of language and myth is not washed away in this flood tide, it is left stranded on high, inaccessible ground, where it can be of little value to the education whose ends, like those of mathematics, have become wholly utilitarian. Right. Yeah. Wholly utilitarian. Yeah. I mean, modern art, you know, if, if all it is, it's purely sensual. It yes. treats you like an animal, right? So if you are presented with a signed urinal or a canvas that is all red, the only real question that can be asked is what does it do to your animal? Yes. Right. To your animal self. How does your body re- react to this? Because that's all you are. Yeah. And so art just becomes that some sort of stimulus. Right. And that <laughs> that the, the the impoverishment that that represents um, ought to spark all of us to reevaluate 
our, our epistemology, like how we treat knowledge and where we put science and honestly how we define science. I am a great advocate for all of us redefining science, at, not as knowledge, but as awareness. Awareness, that's a, that's a good point. And, and I think, you know, your idea or your, your example there of, of the way art is just reaction, this is the po- that's the postmodern impulse for art, right? Yeah. It's, it's the, the observer's reaction to the art. This is why it gets really weird and it gets, it gets gross, uh, becomes obscene because it's part of the, uh, how does it make a person, you know, react, right? Right. And, and that's that animal, that animal instinct. Um, well, I, I was going to, I'm not going to go down that road, but I was going <laughs> to, I went to an art show once and there was this postmodern, this postmodern piece in there and it was um, the most bizarre thing ever. And, um, and that's where I first began to discover and understand the way that that was meant to be. Yeah. It was these little plastic families with these like little plastic houses and plastic grass. And so all of them had these little familial scenes and barbecue in the backyard, dad mowing the thing, but they all had some grotesque element in them like they were barbecuing the baby mm-hmm. um you know some kind of a weird but it was you know getting people's reaction was you know was the point and that's you know that reduces in just in the realm of art right that reduces you know there's nothing objectively beautiful um and because who gets to define it there's no ideal image who defines what beauty is right, right? and you know we, we want to live in a world where you could use the words beauty and goodness as synonyms. Yes, they should. And our scientific world should be within that. Yep. Well, this trans this this transformation takes place where where this this begins to change um, as as we've already meant it, uh, mentioned. So in the Cartesian world mm-hmm. with Bacon, <laughs> uh, he he mentions. Um, in, in this fourth section, he says the ancients interest in science was what we today call theoretical. Okay. So we've talked about that already, but unlike Plato and Galen, however, the fathers of modern science, Bacon and Descartes never paused to ponder science, scientific studies effect on man's character or to pay their respects to the ideal type. When they boldly promised mankind a science that would make them quote masters and possessors of nature, brushing aside the question to what end does man and seek knowledge as a theological and therefore unsound. And so let me just pause there, but in the middle of my quote here, but the idea that it has any kind of teleology in the, the modern world, any purpose to, you know, to what end that, that has to be discounted because we're not talking about what ought, right? That's, right. It, it can only be what we can analyze, what we can see. So that's unsound. And these original thinkers started a revolution that profoundly altered man's assumptions about himself while dramatically expanding his opportunities for material progress. And this creates a world that we live in, a world of power plays and technocrats. And we've got all kinds of, um, of, of technology today that man can leverage to use as power against other men because he doesn't have a fundamental concept of what a man is. Right. You know, and it doesn't bother me that, that men like uh, Bacon and Descartes existed. What bothers me is that they did indeed start a revolution, which tells, you know, tells me that, you know, the, the Christian West as a whole was, was complicit in this and, and, and ripe, ripe for that. But the, the reason I say that it doesn't bother me is that a, a lot of this comes from a legacy of a culture with meaning and and a life with meaning, right? So it's it's amazing when you read Bacon and Descartes how often Christian they sound. Yes, right. Like if you broke apart their theology, of course you'd have. But but when they're talking, they sound like Christians, and 
There's a reason for that. They're existing in that in that world. And so for them to have a blind spot about, okay, well, what I'm saying is going to lead to vast meaninglessness. Uh, you know, the fact that they couldn't see that doesn't bother me. Yeah. But of course, now we're, uh, we're, we're, you know, it, it, it takes a while for that legacy of Telos uh, <laughs> to wear off. Sure. And so, you know, of course it took two or 300 years, but now here we are living in a world that means nothing. Well, and, and, and to, um, you know, follow up on what you're saying, if, if you take, here's something really interesting. When, when Newton began to write and he's writing his principles and, and uh, laying out the laws of motion and all that, Newton wrote more theology yeah. than, than he did anything else. Um, but Voltaire made, makes the comment. He said he loved Newton because in his principles, Newton didn't reference God. Um, and when Newton was confronted about it, he was like, well, that's the obvious starting point. That's what, you know, that we couldn't do this and there's no purpose in doing this unless we, you know, assume obviously God's existence. And, and so there was this attitude or the, to me, that sort of reflects this attitude where they want to lift away the principles that came because of this history of theory and thinking about the universe and man's place in the universe and, and who he was. Um, to basically just lift it away and separate it, divorce it, and then mm -hmm. just use the benefit of that, right, right for, for their, their theological end of progress. Well, there's this great quote here, and, and I think this is worth, um, you know, getting in before we wrap up. But um, Bacon, um, he says, uh, let's see, there's a quote here from Bacon, a hard-edged pronouncement, human knowledge and power meet in one. This is Bacon's theory, right? So human knowledge and power meet in one. And Hicks says, it is in a way this glib response to the question, why seek knowledge? But the power of which he speaks is a discipline of mind leading to the manipulation of the material universe, not to the soul's salvation. That's such an important, uh, yeah, such an important point. Uh, and, and not least because, you know, we have to acknowledge as Christians that there is often rigor mm -hmm. uh, in in the scientific community um and and in those who uh, seem to do our thinking for us right <laughs> the intellectual class uh, there is rigor but it's a shallow rigor it is a meaningless rigor it's uh, it's it's uh, you know a sisyphus having the discipline to go up and down and up and down and up and down again. Like it, it I, I don't care, you know, yes. but it is like, it, it's, it's easy for us to be impressed by scientists, right? Well, because they are in fact doing many difficult, amazing, hardworking things. What does it mean? Ask the simple question. Yeah. And I, th I think the, the, the end result there is you have an efficient man, you have efficient technology, yes. efficient progress, but no moral end, right? All for nothing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, th uh, one of the things that Lewis points out in the abolition of man is the idea that, you know, man begins to use um, this scientific technology, right. To manipulate. And this is what Bacon's talking about to manipulate nature and then we start doing things like, okay, we've made automobiles and that makes travel faster, but we also created contraceptives. 
right? Um, we we have we have made you know uh, we talked about penicillin earlier, but then now we realize penicillin can be used for you know STDs and syphilis that was so prevalent during those times, right? And now all of a sudden we open up a moral door that if we don't you know if we've already progressed in certain ways where you have a Descartes and Bacon saying how do we think about the world without thinking about God? You know, yeah. Can we start with our reason? Now we have a world that says, oh, we don't really need the Bible. We don't need God. And so now we, we see the the results of the sexual revolution that really materialized um, in the early 20th century and kind of came to fruition in the 60s. And we're living in the, the end result of it. Right. That's just one example that Lewis points to. Yeah, to I mean, we're, we are unable to to cope with our technology. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like if, <laughs> if you read uh, T.S. Eliot's uh, choruses from The Rock, uh. it, it'll make you sad on behalf of the church and on behalf of humanity that cars exist. Yeah. But I'm sure T.S. Eliot wouldn't argue, and, and I certainly wouldn't argue, that it's a bad thing that cars exist. They're actually, it's wonderful. I just think of all the good that comes from cars. Great. But if we can't confront the the losses and the gains that we get from our technology and, and the, the, the moral losses and gains, right? The moral meaning. What does it mean that we now have cars, yeah. right? No one, no one has asked that question significantly. So what does it mean that we have computers? What does it mean that we can exist online? If we can't answer that, we will be devoured. Yes. And I think, you know, when you're using cars as an example, uh, Tolkien, uh, you're probably aware of this, he wouldn't own a car. He wouldn't drive right. a car. And he looked at Oxford in the modern world with cars and shops, and now everybody's moving from this rural kind of life to you can live in suburbia and drive your car into work. You know, and now you've got all these cars filling up the area, smog and all the noise and everything that, that comes with that. But there's another implication, too, just, you know, to, that we think about. In some ways, we've become slaves to commercialism because most people have begun to rely on automobiles right. and things. And so it's like, well, I got to have a car because I got to get to work because, you know, and, and life is built around these things. And I wouldn't make the decision that, that, that Tolkien made, but I admire it. Why? Because he thought about it. And the modern mantra is question everything. Yep. Our mantra should be examine everything. Even if it does hint at Whitman, <laughs> you know, it should be examine everything, everything about our lives, like how we talk to our children, what foods we buy, everything should be examined. Why did you go to this school? Why do you wear that shirt? Everything should be examined. And so then, you know, should I have a car is a moral question. What time do I wake up is a moral question. And those are they can have different answers sure. for each of us, but they must be examined in the light of the of, of the Christian life. Everything must be examined, um, and we are unable to do that. We just we just meekly accept that we must own a car. You don't have to own a car. Make the decision, even if everybody else is doing it. Examine it. Well, you're using the word examine, and I'm not going to correct that word, but but that kind of sounds like analysis. And I think what you mean is this is a theoretical, um, yes. you know, question, yeah, that right? Is what I mean, and and I and I I only point that out because Hicks rightly points out to the fact that in mathematics, all mathematics was about was learning how to think about the ideal type, right? right. So thinking about perfection, thinking about the ideal type, getting so, beyond the appearances, yes, yeah. so that we would ask these questions 
decisions and our normal day-to-day experiences, not defining our life by experiences we have, but defining what life means by how we look at those experiences, right? By how we think about the world. And so it does lead to asking those questions in everything. They're all moral questions. So I think you're absolutely right. Well, this has been fantastic. There's so much more to unpack, but I hope we've given you a taste of uh, this chapter anyway. And as we continue through this journey of norms and nobility, we're thinking about the idea in which classical and modern education have two different ends, two different goals. One's utilitarian and one is how can we be the best man we can be? All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. God bless. God bless.